0: Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated classics. Or at least what we deem as classics. My name is Courtney Small.
1: (laughs) And I'm Andrew Hathaway.
0: If you like what you hear, then we highly recommend that you take a moment, especially if you have an iTunes account, to hop over to iTunes and rate our show. Of course, you can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher. Also, if you want to support the show, there's two ways you can do that. The first is by contributing to Andrew's Patreon page over at his site, Can't Stop the Movies. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help to support the production work that he does for this show, as well as support the various writings that he does and, you know, help to put some food in his cat's plate uh also you can hey it's a very important cats need to eat as well
1: well i'm glad that we're just honest about the priorities now i will lose
0: weight my cats and wife will be fed you know what sometimes when it comes to family you got to have those priorities uh also you can donate to the modern superior patreon account uh modern superior is a site that hosts us and they're a great support to us so hop over to them and support them as well now we're going to change things up normally we like to have a episode where we'll discuss a few short films, and then go on to a feature. But today, things are going to be light and easy. We only have one feature film to talk about, and we have a special guest. Our guest today is Seth Gordon. You may have seen his work if you've visited the Modern Superior website, or if you follow me on Instagram, or if you follow our show on any social media platform, because Seth does all the wonderful episode art that you see every other week. So it's a treat to have him on. And Seth, would you like to say a little something, introduce yourself to our fans?
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Seth. I'm
0: excited to be here. This will be fun, and uh, straight to the point.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> as I said, it's gonna be a very loose kind of episode. so that's um uh, so Seth, what's going on with you? How are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good.
2: Thanksgiving was pretty awesome time with the family. Got to see a lot of people I didn't expect to see, and for all the running around it, it was more relaxing. And I, I thought it was going to be, even though the weeks since then have been a lot of like catch up for work and everything. Everything I'm working on right now is really exciting, including watching our uh, feature again to get ready for this podcast. And uh, I've only been on one other podcast before, but incidentally, I think that actually started a conversation between Andrew and I that led to our video game discussion and sort of led to here also which is pretty cool.
1: It did. I, I I'm trying to remember cuz listener, I will go ahead and say as spacey and rambly as I normally am, I am even worse. The holidays left me with a partial flu and then earlier today I had my first sinus migraine so my brain is like dead. And now I'm trying to remember because, yeah, that was a really good podcast, and you're absolutely correct. I wish I could remember more details, but...
2: Uh, I can death. tell you it it was uh, Brad Carney's game design podcast, and uh, the episode had something to do with communicating game rules to the player or player agency or something like that. I, f- I forget the exact topic, but... It was a good time.
1: I'll make sure to dig it up so that we can include it in the show notes and that there will be a more concise, direct listening experience instead of my, oh God, why (laughs) is my brain not letting me remember this?
0: There's going to be a lot of that today. So outside of the digital art that you do, Seth, you're also into game design?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm working on one project at the moment, which is called The Boy Who Stole the Sun, which... uh, Andrew's uh, producing with me and that project's been kind of going in slow motion for a long time just because working on a project alone just has a you know has a lot of challenges but but this fall getting into implementing gameplay and moving toward alpha getting a vertical slice of features put together so that the uh, whole experience can be evaluated and see if it uh, functions as intended that sort of
1: thing. And I guess for the cineasts who may be listening who are wondering what a vertical slice is, just think of a, like, demo reel or a uh, collection of headshots for actors, that sort of thing, just in video
0: game terms.
2: Yeah, it's the minimum set of features that will communicate the
0: core experience. that sounds pretty cool. And And, Andrew, outside of your uh, not feeling well, how was your (laughs) your holidays? (laughs) Uh, Well, that's most of
1: it. There was, and I it pains me to say this, because I closed our last episode with Kristen Lopez when we discussed Hush, saying that, you know, when I hit $100 on the Can't Stop the Movies Patreon, I haven't hit it yet, but you, listener, could be the lucky contributor, that I would pay her back for what she feels Zack Snyder owes her for, Sucker Punch. In that time since, I have watched Justice League. And I do not think I have felt more phenomenally crushed in my heart and soul (laughs) coming out of a movie than I was with Justice League. There's a lot of complications, a lot of uh, who did what, when, and where. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say screw Joss Whedon. I hope he stays away from anything I like for the rest of my life, if not the rest of his, because hopefully I'll outlive him. But considering how I've been feeling, that's kind of a tall order. (laughs) Um... Other than that, just trying to figure out how to concentrate on writing when you've got the flu or sinus headaches, and obviously no writing when you've got a sinus migraine. So any tips are welcome.
0: Wow. You know, I'm still trying to get over your Justice League review because I I haven't seen the film, but I know you're a big... Zack Snyder fans. So to hear the disappointment is, is shocking, especially because some of the people I've talked to have said it's not as bad as they thought it was going to be. <laughs> but, you know, and that was actually considered high praise. <laughs> and some people were saying oh, it's, it's okay, but it wasn't great, very problematic. So to hear you being crushed and then blaming josh whedon of all people it's it's interesting i'm I'm more intrigued to see it now
1: it's man there's gonna be a huge book written on the backstage shenanigans that happened with justice league like my biggest beef is that with zach gone that means that deborah snyder wasn't as much of a creative voice as she has been for all of zach's movies really visually There's almost nothing that Joss and Zack have in common. And considering it was, I think it was something like five to six months of reshoots, you know, scrap musical score entirely, there was just so much tinkering with it. And you've got Zack Snyder's Book of Revelations only with superheroes visual style colliding badly with Joss Whedon's we're gonna stand around and be snarky style. So it's just, it's just a total mess. WB folks wanted a Marvel movie and, well, they got most of a Marvel movie. Good on them, but disappointing for me.
0: Warner Brothers, how they've handled that whole DC property has been baffling to me. But, you know what, maybe that's a, a show for another another day. I concur. And anyways, I, I'd say that we, we're still talking of a superhero of sort today because our feature film is going to be... No, I I no, your I would argue. I, just, I love your transitions. I would argue if you if you when you see this film and you see a naked man running on ice for a long period of time in the harsh terrain, you got to go. This guy's got superhero powers. Like it's it's great. So our feature film today is Arjunajit, the fast runner. It's a 2001 Canadian film directed by Zachariah Canuck, and it's based on a inuit legend and it it tells a story of artanajit a a man who ultimately ends up with two wives and because he took on the second wife there's a lot of problems that it causes within his family especially with his brother and also some issues that are raised with rival i don't want to say trident because i guess they're all essentially the same clan but different fractions if if you will yeah, that's what I would go with. It's <laughs> it's going to be one of those episodes, folks. We're sorry. Um, <laughs> this film was picked by Tiff and a bunch of film critics and filmmakers as – the greatest Canadian film of all time back in 2015. And I think it's still up there. If it's not number one, it's number two in in the poll. I have to do some quick research, but I believe it's still up there. So this film connected with a lot of people. And I know for myself, I saw this at the 2001 Toronto International Film Festival, and that was like my very first year going. And I saw this, I want to say, a few days after 9-11 occurred, once 9-11 happened, they essentially shut the festival down that day, and there was debate on whether or not they were going to cancel it altogether, and they decided to continue it, but without all the extravagance, without all the, the hoopla. And the two films I remember distinctly seeing after 9-11, once the festival started again, was Monsoon Wedding and this film. Both of those films kind of just stuck with me for years. So I was actually surprised when you guys selected it, because in Canada, it's, it's well-revered but i was never quite sure how it was received internationally and if it still would connect with american audiences all these years later so if you want to dive in Seth, do you want to start off with your thoughts on the film
2: yeah it it Come up in just search results. Like I, I don't think I heard of it on the initial run or in, or when it was first shown, but I just came across it when I was looking for information about uh, Inuit culture and whatever. And and it just all of the talk about it was so positive that I I had been wanting to see it for a while. So when the opportunity came up to get access to it, I was I was pretty eager to give it a viewing and. Uh, I also have just an incredible fascination for folk tales and oral tradition and the way that stories that come directly from a people that aren't sort of manufactured in another medium like a book or a movie, like stuff that has that root in a people rather than as sort of like art comes from it later rather than the story coming from a piece of art. That stuff is exciting to me because I think it reveals things about the people and the way that that story took shape. So this just lit up all the right lights in my brain to get me excited. And the opening to this, there's a little narration which sets up. I mean, you mentioned that there's this sort of strife between people based on the wives that this This main character has, but the inciting incident to me is like the, the curse that starts in the sort of prologue section where there's just an evil shaman that makes some weird choices and sets this whole series of events in motion, and there's this bit of narration that says... Evil came to us like death and we just had to live with it. The tone of delivery, even though I'm reading subtitles, it just made me think, like, what do they mean came to us like death? Do they mean that it was sad or do they mean that it was it came so naturally and it was just totally out of our hands? And the second part where she says we just had to live with it, especially on my second viewing, which I did just today to kind of get refreshed on everything, it just made me think about all the silence that there is in this culture of people. As presented in the film, there's so many things where people don't respond. They just look and listen rather than saying something back all of the time. And we just had to live with it. That seemed to be like a tone-setting statement for almost the entire film and the way that people have to deal with the struggles that emerge so i get very excited just from the very beginning of film just because of the way it's set up what did you guys think about that prologue section
1: well the the prologue section first off because i I also watched it again today and uh courtney we're going to have our old pronunciation issues the reason i'm going to be a slight stickler is just because of how sonorous atanarjuat is especially when you have the wives going and so on i just I, I just love how sonorous and lovely his name is first of all but to go with what you're saying seth about the prologue particularly with the silence i think it's a good way of uh, zacharias kunak to set up the dynamics without having someone come up and say, okay, this person's this person, they see over these people, and so on. It invites you into their daily rhythms without having a narrator come on and explicitly outline who is doing what. And that's what makes this partly just like a fascinating, almost documentary, because there's so much that you get to learn about how life was. But I also love how every bit that you get to learn sets up a payoff way down the line my favorite example is one of the earliest shots in the prologue of one of the the village women creating a slightly less frictiony surface on the bottom of a sled by sliding a little more water onto the ice so it'll be a little slipperier when the men have to go out with the sleds and then when you start talking about the mystical element it's one of those things that could have come off as a joke like that monty python uh, and the holy grail joke about oh bestowing monarchies based on strange women aquatic ceremonies I'm a horrible film nerd by not getting the quote exactly, but this intro with the mysterious evil force that kind of comes in and guides the people toward who their next leader is going to be, it's like you have this underlying hostility at first between the different families in this clan, but then you have something so otherworldly come in and basically say, no, we have to codify... This hostility, this hostility needs to be actually part of our clan culture. And the fact that they seem so helpless in the face of it, that this is something that they just have to learn how to accept. That's when you're reading, especially, of the, uh, you know, the evil came in like death. In modern wise, we've got so many medical ways to stave off death, but this isn't modern times it's so uniquely of its moment so it just seems like everyone accepting that evil is going to be there and just feeling powerless against it for so long
2: there's also this element that i think is like a a a... A kind of dichotomy set up between those people who feel like they need to take control or to contrive control over their own group of people and those who are patient and wait to see what happens next before they respond. And that sort of patience seems to be the weaker force in any one given moment, but it also sets up these people as like they're the better listeners, they have relationships that last. You know, the people that are loyal among the quiet side of the family or the tribe, they can overcome great difficulty with more grace than the side that is constantly taking control. And even though they kind, both sides kind of stick together, there's eventually mutinies and murder and whatever that takes place among those who are taking control against themselves. Like they just need to do whatever they can to keep control. It's almost like the evil that comes in, sees that they want control and is like, has its opportunity to rule for a while because that desire for control is there.
0: Yeah. And one of the things, your point about the desire for control, I found fascinating about this film is that I could say the people in both families that are, I guess what we consider the patient ones, they do their best to try and keep the peace even though they see the stuff that Oki is is doing and how the power, I guess, was it his father that took it illegally, if you will, um, <laughs> yes. and how Oki is now trying to exert his own power and, and hopefully succeed his father. But it's fascinating where there's times where a fight is about to break out, but then they remember we're all one people. We rely on each other to survive, to live, and this violence is not us. So they'll they'll always have that little step back. And then even someone like Oki will know whose buttons he can push further. He can go after one person but then be like, "Oh, but this other person's much stronger, so I need to be a little hesitant." There's a very Shakespearean Aspect to the way how this story unfolds with the the various families and who's betraying who and who's waiting for their moments. And I I thought it, it played effectively throughout this entire film.
2: As a little aside, there's another interesting aspect. Andrew's talking about just getting to see the rhythm of their daily life, and there's this thing that was occurring to me as as someone that doesn't have any experience in even the modern-day version of that culture. I've, I've never been to that part of the world, and I've never seen it for myself outside of this. The, what's shown in this movie. There's a sense of like wonder and privilege and getting to see this totally other culture's way of you know, moving through their space, collecting resources and how they sort of manually process it to make it edible and to not waste anything and so forth. And the the thing that was occurring to me is like, how do usual like Hollywood movies do this? I think everything from Star Wars on at various depths, that moment in the hero cycle that's like the threshold moment, the bar at Mos Eisley or whatever where you just put a lot of strange things in a scene to get a viewer to feel like you're going somewhere else and this film by just being I guess true to the source it transports me in a way that is again all all about that rhythm it's just about like set the camera down and watch somebody scrape apart the various layers of an animal until it's usable and we don't see that whole process but there's enough of it there that you just start to watch and wait for like the next thing to happen and The film keeps going, no, this is it. This is what it looks like. And every scene that unfolds that shows part of that rhythm or part of the little habits that make up their daily life, I found to be like really transporting. I don't know if everybody would respond that way, but it gave me uh, a sense of being in another time and and place to add another depth than most movies that I see. So I thought that was a delightful experience that they were also patient in the filmmaking in that way.
1: Well, the patient's because obviously that's a strong character trait of Atanarsjwatt's family, despite the fact that you know he is <laughs> he is the fast runner and but the fast runner in this case you know it's it's almost more like a marathon runner than it is a sprinter. It's someone who knows how to play the long game and to wait out these horrible forces in order to come out on top. But there's still a sympathy at play between. Atanarjuat and Oki that I really enjoy. The rivalry, from Oki's perspective, it's very toddler ish. One of the most telling scenes when Oki is chasing Atanarjuat across the great floats and the ice and the water and so forth, he just sits there and pouts after Atanarjuat jumps away and he and hit he's just sitting there almost whining like a child. He goes, I won't stop until you're dead. It's not this grand evil vindictiveness. It's just this childish entitlement that Oki feels towards Atanarjuat and anything that revolves in Atanarjuat's life. And I like that as a recurring motif throughout it as well because Oki is is just driven by immediate impulse. Part of the humor in The Fast Runner comes with... Atanajuat and briefly his brother Amakjuak, who is the strong one instead basically just patiently dealing with oki's nonsense when we find out that atanarjuat is a fast runner it's so odd when we're used to the rhythms of hollywood movies where the action just has to start it has to start it has to start but oki just saunters over says i'm taking your wolves see you later and then both Amakjuak and Atanarjuat just watch him take it away. And the resignation in Amakjuak's voice when he says, run after them, it's like, this is something that's happened before. And we see, when we're coming in, it seems like we're at the point in the cycle when Atanarjuat and his family are just so tired of the childishness of this other family in their clan that they've tolerated it jokingly for so long, and then when it finally culminates in that brutal fist-to-skull moment when Atanajuat and Oki finally fight against each other, it almost feels like transferring these toddler urges to these adolescent urges when And obviously there's the sex component as well. It's that patient cycle of dealing with Oki's crap. And then finally having this reminder that, yes, we do have to live with each other. And Oki tries to reject that by killing Amakjuak and trying to kill Atanarjuat. Well, Atanarjuat, again, plays the long game. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because even, I guess one of the earliest scenes is when they're little kids and and little babies and you have the older generation and the big betrayal okie essentially grows up wanting to fulfill whatever prophecy he envisions for himself but it always comes down to hey that girl's supposed to be mine why is she looking at you hey that girl is supposed to be mine why are you guys playing this tag game like you know he was always on the it should be me where artanaja is like you know we really don't care about you we, we put up we put yeah. up with you because you know your family and our family we live together we, you know we are a society but we're used to this so I'm glad you brought up the dog sled scene because that's a perfect example where they seal it they're like haha you know ours got away we didn't know how to control it so we're gonna take yours there's a, a moment later on in the film where he's punishing one of the dogs and you can see everyone in the community is just looking down at Oki for abusing you know the animal because again the animal is resourceful but it's also a part of them it's a part of their Clan, and he's trying to talk tough while kicking a dog. And it's like, your buddy, you're not impressing anybody, even his two little henchmen, if you will. There's a lot of times where they kind of look at each other like, really? Do we have to put up with this guy? But all right, let's keep going. So it's he's he's a very interesting character, and in I and his relationship to them because there's that moment where he basically pushes his sister onto Artanajut and sets it up so that she will be the new bride and up until that point we've seen him kind of be very vindictive but once he sees Artenejit alone the little mouse wheel in his head starts running he's like hey l- let me be really nice push my sister off on him and let's see what happens and for maybe 20 minutes in the film you get the nice version of him which is still as smarmy as the backstabbing version of him so there's really no good version of (laughs) Oki.
1: i I think we do get light hints at the very end after the mystical rabbit meat ceremony has taken place also side note i love that all the mystical elements in this we basically have to infer otherwise it's just a bunch of weirdness that just kind of happens that's something that actually improved on the the second time because i didn't quite understand the rabbit stuff the first time around but anyway headache's getting me off tangent you get that Oki childishness still but it's no longer a vindictive childishness at the very end it's more an Oki who is taking more pleasure in what's immediately around him instead of lusting after something else but again that's more at the very end
2: There's also, aside from patience versus immediate gratification as forces, there's around Oki only two people that seem really taken aback by his behavior in a way that causes them to be concerned, which are his grandmother and Atanarjuat himself. Because I remember the older brother talking to Atanarjuat at some point, and he's something like... Atanarjuat's upset. This is leading up to the punch heads scene in the igloo and the older brother is just like, I don't think about him at all. He's nothing. Like his way of shrugging everything off does a couple of things. It keeps the older brother in this place where Oki is always mad because he can't ever get him to react the way that he wants, but the younger brother, who maybe gets picked on more because he's maybe not as strong or something, he's the one that's ready to go do something about it. And I think when they get to that taking your sled dogs scene that you mentioned, it's interesting that the brothers act together in that moment and that them finally, like seeing it the same way, kind of sets them on their journey of taking him down a peg rather than just putting up with it. But I also like that the grandmother, all the way through, there's a bunch of shots of her just looking silently with this like shameful look, like, I can't believe that's my grandson. She knows when like that curse took place or whatever on the family, and she's like, it affected his father. And even when she's talking to Atuat, she says, I don't, you know, I don't want you to marry my grandson. He's an angry man, just like his father. So she, like, understands. She's been witness to this whole cycle for two generations. Especially on the second viewing, it made me really happy to realize that she was an active participant in dispelling the evil at the end. And then the sort of, like, coup de grace moment where she banishes the remaining evildoers permanently from their group, which even... Atuat, who's maybe the most forgiving person in, in the group, one of them anyway, is almost in shock when they cut to her. She's like, I can't believe this is happening. I think that magnified the moment in a place where the grandmother says that she's forgiven them all, but that she has to cast them out in a place where every human being is an asset. Everything is a resource to keep everyone alive, that the evil that they've done is a big enough deal now. And it's seen for what it is by everyone and not just her. And now it's the right moment to say, you've done enough bad that it's better for everyone if you go your own way in life now. Whatever good you can do is so much smaller than the bad that we have to cut you loose now. That was a a pretty big moment, especially on the second viewing.
0: Yeah, I really liked the grandmother character. Actually, I found all the women in in the film fascinating, but especially the grandmother because she, when the film... Delves into the mystical aspects. It felt so natural. I know Andrew, you had mentioned without certain context, you might have to question some of the weird stuff that's going on. But for me, it—I never questioned. Like I, I liked when she would call for help from the ancestors, and you'd see that scene of him turning around, being "What I'm needed," you know? And like it with the way how this film flows and the type of culture that they have created and that they live within. The mystical aspects hit me, and I'm, I'm glad that he incorporated and he and he let it sit like he didn't they didn't feel like one-offs See like he kept coming back to it like we get at the beginning we get some at the middle and then it also comes in handy at the, the very end and with the grandmother especially like i liked when she was telling her you know her future grandchild hey, i like you i like you more than my grandson you're too good for him i really wish there was a a, a way that you weren't committed to him based on the parents agreements and i found her interesting i found that to what interesting as well because as much as she loves Artanajet, there comes a point especially towards the end where she almost begrudgingly has to admit okay if I want to feed my child I'm gonna have to live with Oki's family become his wife even though I don't want to and this comes after she's forgiven Oki's sister for basically messing up their whole family dynamics by sleeping with Artanajet's brother and it's I don't know. There's there's a lot of forgiveness in this film, but there's also limits. Similar to what you were saying, Seth, and, and and I like it that it's the women that are the ones who are constantly showing where the the forgiveness line is and also the limit line is because <laughs> the men yeah. are are doing a lot of the, I don't say macho stuff, but there's a lot of posturing until. They get to the, the igloo scene where they're punching each other for what's hand. But also later on, there's that great scene where Arjun Ajit gets Oki and his boys into the igloo that he has specifically tricked out to ensure that it's basically an ice rink that they're going to be fighting on. So they kind of do the, the primal thing, but it's the women that handle their, the situation and kind of oversee the flow of what will happen within the clan. And I found that really interesting.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like the men may they might wield like the power to kill or to show mercy, but when it comes to forgiveness or cutting someone off, that's definitely in the women's. Uh, it's it's up to them to decide where that line is. And there's uh, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. I'm gonna come back to that once I
1: go ahead. <laughs> well, I was gonna say that with the mystical elements, they're more if you removed them from this context, like if you were just trying to explain the mystical elements to someone, they'd probably sound really funny. But in the context of the fast runner, they're they're beautiful. And I think it has a lot to do with how they're interweaved in with the soundtrack and the music. Because there were many times, especially in this second go-through, when I was stopping in my notes, and it almost sounded like choir music or choral music, some kind of reverie. Uh, with the deep moans and sometimes the the high pitches of women singing as well, mixing in with the didgeridoo and the drums and so on, and the flute, uh, that when we did get the the toil, like the drums kicking in at the beginning when we watch uh, Atanarjuat's father, uh, Tulamak toiling it, with his wolves, there's still an element of joy to it, so it links this earthy quality which for me is the didgeridoo and the drums and makes the mystical elements credible within the context of the story when you get the, the flute and kind of almost the, the choral choir arrangements kicked in as well
2: yeah, and there, some of the, uh, the specifically non humanoid spiritual elements, whether it's the evil spirit as separate from that giggling shaman or he himself, there was like this bear growl that accompanied. That influence throughout the entire film, whether he was there or not, whether it was a good moment or a bad one, it's sort of like this lingering presence that's looking in on everyone to see if it can get a foothold. And then when the sort of visiting old man that had taken care of Atenarjuat, when he ran away for a while to save himself, he steps in to be a shaman and he goes into this like walrus mode and does kind of spiritual battle. In my notes I just called that shaman battle when I was writing stuff about it. It's like People's power can't come from themselves in this in this context, in this time and place. It has to be by submitting and aligning themselves with something greater than them. Even our superhero moments of calling in the ancestor's power, you could say it's kind of like a superhero thing to get the ancestor come and deliver your punch for you or lend his power to you, like... It makes me think of like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe or whatever, like I have the power <laughs> kind of moments, except that nobody's calling it for themselves. It's the grandmother that advocates on behalf of the young man. She's the one with the relationship of equality that can reliably summon her brother. And that's one of those setup moments that in the prologue is established early on. There's a little line where she says, I know if I ever need you, I will call for you in my heart and you will come. And then when we see it happen and we get that cool, like, oh, what's going on? I'm going to show up for you. Where he turns around, uh, you you get this little glimpse into the past. And even though it's really simple, you feel like you're transcending time and space there as you watch it happen, which is just a cool thing that really simple cuts can do in a film. When all of the actors are believing that, it just, it just gels really nicely.
1: And there's one thing that you said I have latched onto, like, a vice. How they have to summon animal spirits in order to resolve these violent conflicts that have come in. That really speaks to how important the patience is in the filming and then also how these characters have to consider their own survival it makes sense that if you wanted to look at this without a mystical element i don't know why you would but hey let's just go with this they would almost have to have like a locus of violence and hate outside themselves because their community is so small their clan is so small that allowing it in like this without having something outside themselves that they could use to expel it it is Almost going back to that prequel line, you know, settling in like death. They have to have some way of excising it that is separate from themselves. Otherwise, it will just, as we see, it will just stay and fester.
2: Even the man that helps is a little bit outside. It's just three people. He and... I guess his wife and a a little girl, they're just kind of traveling out by themselves. They're aware of these people, like maybe they remember them from a long time ago. But he's our sort of, I don't know why Star Wars is on my brain so much, but he's kind of our Obi-Wan or our mystical mentor character that shows up. And he just has, relative to all the other surviving members of this community, he's got either more knowledge or more willingness, more understanding to delve into that spiritual side of things or the mystical side, and stand in for these people who've just been uh, under the burden of this evil influence for a long time. I think that's right in line with what you're saying, just thematically that some something from outside of the group comes in to help set it
0: right. And I also like the um to to jump off of that the the role of the elders. In this film, um, whether they be part of Oki's family, Artanajut's family, or I guess in this case, the extended, if I remember correctly, it's the extended uh, relative of Oki. Um,
1: yeah, it's uh, Qual, <laughs> and here I am going to be stumbling, Qualitalik, uh, I believe, who is the brother of Panikpak, who is the grandmother of
0: Oki. Yes, and he, I liked how when. Archangel was getting ready to or wanted to kind of go back and extract vengeance. He's the one that's saying, no, no, you've got to wait. It's not your time net. Giving him the history and the, the, the lessons that he needs to know before he can go back and, and be the man that he envisions himself to be. But also when he, if I remember correctly, he when he encounters Oki and the group. He, he basically says, you don't remember me, but I know exactly who you are. This is how we're connected. And I was planning to make a trip out to spend time with you guys, but we think we're going to hold that trip off. You haven't warranted the knowledge that we are willing to give. And there's just something that you certain indigenous films and the sense of family and community that you don't get from a lot of north american films and especially films in hollywood because the elderly especially when it comes to big budget films and if we were going to use the superhero films of the star wars they're kind of there to be killed off or be put in jeopardy they give a little one line of advice you know great power comes great responsibility and then they're gone whereas in this one they're active participants throughout every stage of the film and i i found that fascinating and also refreshing
2: yeah there's uh this is kind of jumping subjects again but one of the notes that I have here is there seems to be um, one thing that's the same between this movie and other movies that I've seen is the apparently cross cultural phenomenon of dramatically taking your shirt off before you fight. I was just sort of like <laughs> amused by that on the second watch that just, even though it's maybe done more quickly in this film than other ones, that there's a lot of pomp and circumstance about disrobing before punching another dude in the head.
0: Well, there's also the, the scene where, and this is like a playful moment early on, where they're having the feat of strength to see who can pull each other's jaw or, or their mouth. Uh, oh, yeah, to, yeah, to, do, to, to see who, yeah, yeah, who could do the the fish hooking, who can endure the most pain out of them, and that's just for fun. So <laughs> when you get to the ceremonial uh, head punching to see who can withstand a possible concussion it almost feels like oh well that's just what they do because when it's for fun they take their shirt off and and these are extreme cold temperatures but you know you're inside the igloo so it didn't bother me as much but i do see the the trend that you point out
1: (laughs) well i think of it uh first on a practical level that these folks, they've, they're basically having petty lustful squabbles. And those are some usable coats and clothing that they could use. So they don't want to get them torn over something as silly as fighting over a girl. But then also it just speaks to how it gives that skull bashing fight this elemental quality to it i've never been so aware of cold than i was at that time and they're technically in a warmer environment they're they've got the seal fat burning they're all comfortable you know they've got a lot of meat in their bodies now so they're all feeling healthy and just the thunk of the closed fist on the temple. And (laughs) speaking again to Oki's tantrum, I mean, Oki gets the first hit and he still ends up losing. But the thunks on the soundtrack of fist to temple and then body to ice, they just chill me so thoroughly. You wouldn't have had probably as much of an impact if they were, say, in their full coats and so on. So, you know, there's the... Practical reasoning, you know, why ruin a good coat? But then there's also just this immediate elemental reasoning of it's one body versus another. May the best man win.
2: And uh, when the final blow is struck there and Oki falls down and goes into seizures and it looks like he can't breathe, you're just like, did he straight up kill that guy? Them some powerful ancestors, you know. It was, (laughs) yeah, it just, it was kind of set up that Atanar Juat was not a great physical being aside from his ability to move quickly. So, like, it didn't look good. So when he lands that final blow after uh, having the extra power granted to him i mean kudos to the actors i cringed when the when the guy fell
1: yeah i don't want to think about the physical toil too much partially because i'm still getting over my own flu thing but <laughs> but we're, we're also talking about the physical toll that the performers clearly took here i was not a huge fan of the revenant the movie that finally got leo dicaprio his acting oscar and i'm Mm. glad that i have the fast runner to point to now there was so much about the revenant that just kind of felt gimmicky and I hate using that word with my criticism. So, you know, you could go and look up my whole review where I managed to get through it without saying gimmicky. But it, it just it just feels like something performative for show. Mm-hmm. And, that, and obviously, you know, we're watching a movie... There is going to be some sense of heightened realism or heightened surrealism, heightened man versus elements, whatever. But here it's woven so well that when Atanarjuat and Oki disrobe to fight, it feels like it's something that has to happen. It's not them enduring the elements so that they can put out a press release about how hard this was. It is their bodies on display putting themselves through this trial so that they feel like they earn something Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, an elongated CGI bear fight.
0: Yeah. And one thing about this film that, that I found interesting is that for your example with the revenant, one of my problems with the revenant, although I, I didn't mind it for the most part as a film overall. Yeah. I don't know. I guess he earned his Oscar by sleeping in a carcass, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Hey, if you do what you got to do, I guess. But Can't knock the, the hustle. Got to do what you do. Yeah, exactly. To. But the indigenous characters in The Reverend, to me, were like the stereotypical Hollywood savage. Oh, the, yeah. You know, I hated that. There was one or two that were nice enough to help him, but for the most part, they were just savages. Whereas here, and I think this is one of the things that I, I like about Zachariah Canuck's films, is that... These are regular people. The environment that they live in and the culture might be different to what we're used to, but the stories of family, deceits, betrayal, uh, what have you, is universal. I don't know if you have seen any of his other films, but the last one that he did, the last narrative film he did was The Searchers, where he literally remade um, John Ford's classic Western The Searchers, but from an indigenous perspective so whereas the searchers in the original version again had the indigenous people as kind of mindless savages here he does it in a a way that you're seeing it from the indigenous perspective and he humanizes all the people like he still keep the same type of story element there's still the great search for the missing child and all the hardships that come with it but he shows that no no these are these are people and i think that's something that hollywood tends to forget they've had so many decades of the kind of old cowboy as an indian's mentality from yonder that they still bring nowadays so when you're talking about the reverend i it immediately took me back to one of those things that i hate that they still do and i'm glad that we have filmmakers like Zachariah that break that stereotype There's another fun
2: thing about this movie being made really in culture so that everyone's just normal folks and that's how it is is that you get other pieces of their perspective, like the cyclical nature of all things. And there's a couple of things that stand out to me. And I'm glad I've sort of like had read about some of these things previous to seeing the movie, because I was able to catch them even on the first watching, which is that their ancestors are not just spirits, but that the spirit of them is recycling through the family when... Atuat is talking to uh, Oki's grandmother. The grandmother calls her little mother. If I understand this correctly, this is literally that, you know, the grandmother is referring to Atuat as her own mother because she sees the same spirit in them. And then when Atuat has a child, she recognizes the spirit of her husband and call, starts calling him little husband, even though he's like uh, several generations younger than her. And they align these really well at the end when she has already cast out the evildoers and she's like, where's my little husband? And they're calling for the child and he comes toddling into the igloo. And at the same moment, they overplay the mystical sound of his voice saying, sing my song. And they just visually... And with the audio, align those things in the same moment. And because I had sort of read about this understanding, it clicked really beautifully for me, even on the first watching, that they were showing that cyclical nature. And I think it plays into why the patient side of the family is so patient is because they know that there's like this renewal, this turning over. That doesn't have the same desperation to it as when people that believe that they're sort of locked into this linear existence and they begin and end and they've got to get everything that they can get right now or they're going to lose their opportunity. I think that the perspective of things being cyclical opens up all kinds of possibilities for a patient and peaceful perspective that wouldn't be otherwise acceptable, uh, accessible or Feasible in, in an otherwise really harsh and forbidding environment like that. So that's something that really stood out to me and I wanted to mention. And there's one other neat point where Oki's father, right before Oki murders him so that he can be in charge of everything, is still lusting after Achuat and Atanarjuat has been out of the picture long enough that he's like, why can't I just have her? Her husband's probably dead, so it's fine. And his father, who had been part of this curse, still has this element of him that either is almost coming back to normal or just has a little bit of room to it where he still understands kind of the rules of the society. And he says, how do you know he's dead? And Oki's like, there's no way he could survive out there a man with no clothes on the ice that he just he's he's obviously dead of course and then the father says his soul is alive he got away from you son which is also like this had oki been a, an obedient child he, he that would have been a pretty harsh smackdown of you made yourselves enemies with this guy and you let him get away even if he is dead you can't go and take this woman because his spirit goes on. And it was just like this little moment that for me was almost hopeful the first time when I didn't know what was coming, because I was like, okay, things do come around. This guy that's been part of the cycle is starting to come out of it. But I think that's why Oki killed him, because he was still firmly in the grasp of this, you know, evil influence. And he was like, uh oh, that's starting to look good. I got to cut that off before it's going to come against me.
0: It's interesting. I took that scene slightly different because I took the father's warning almost as a sign of the fear within the father. Okie, you've gone out and tried to kill these two brothers and you haven't been successful. And now you've put our whole standing within this community in peril because you don't know if this guy is dead. You're clearly not the right person to try and kill him. So I took that warning as the, you messed up, son, now we got to play this very carefully. Whereas Oki, again, was being too blinded by his own ego and his own petulant rage, if you will, that he at that point realizes that he he's never going to be able to impress his father or take his father's throne the proper way. Because mm. uh, he can't do... A simple thing of kill these two men that were essentially sitting ducks or sleeping ducks for him. That's how I interpreted that scene, but it is open to different interpretations.
2: Yeah, and I might be reading more into it than it's there, but either way, it definitely serves to prompt Oki to take the next dramatic step to make sure that things go his way even, oh, yeah, I, I agree. even when he can't
1: yeah i'm split between the two of you what i'll say as far as weigh is concerned is that courtney's interpretation makes the he tripped and fell on his knife a lot funnier in kind of a macabre <laughs> way because oki is so inept at everything that even after his father warned oki to stop being so inept that the best he could come up with was my dad tripped and fell on his knife
0: of all the excuses that you can come I up with, you're been, like, oh my you're like, that's the best you can do. Like, you you forget you're in a climate and culture where they have survived harsh elements, you know, um, wild animals, and whatnot. And it's like, oh no, he just fell and landed on his knife. Yes,
1: this will surely free me from my guilt.
0: I think he's relying on people's grief
2: to, that they'll be so devastated that they won't care what he said. I don't know. It's if. That's assuming that he even thought that far ahead, which
0: is not a sure thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, knowing uh, Oki, probably not.
0: <laughs> of that family, it's actually his sister, Pooja, who I guess has the most brains, or at least knows how to play the various sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and she can entice Jut's brother to sleep with him, and then when all that comes to head, run back to her, her own family and be like, I did nothing, and... You know, my husband tried to kill me. And people will still believe her. And even when Arjuna comes back triumphant to reclaim his wife and child, at that moment, she looks around and she's like, hmm, what are my options? Okay, the best I can do is maybe try and get back in Arjuna's good graces. Maybe he doesn't know it's me that set him up to be killed. And does that great scene where like 10 minutes after the first wife goes and greets him she then is like oh i'm so happy to see you and tries to play it up like she at least knows how to play the game better than oki who's yeah she's a schemer and there's a couple of things that make
2: me i I don't know if i understand the references made here well enough to determine this for certain but it, it looks like she's trying to experiment with some kind of like black magic without really knowing exactly what she's doing i'm not sure they call her a witch and they say that maybe she's messing around with spirits when she goes off by herself even if that's not legit it definitely like she is plotting and scheming like the whole time every smile that she does every time she cries she's playing people's emotions which even if she has no other expertise is definitely part of her arc
1: and i think that the the agency of the women and the Fast Runner is part of what makes this kind of a cathartic watch, considering what we're going through in our current cultural moment, finally Mm -hmm. you know, getting all of these men held to task for their crimes against women and so on, and that the final decision gets to come down to the grandmother who has been sitting there patiently the entire movie, comforting where she can, politely warning where she can, and so on. And it does speak really strongly about how we have to respect the harmony, we have to find some way of recognizing that, yes, we're in a cycle of life, we don't want anyone to needlessly suffer, but I also love that uh, Panikpak, she recognizes the moment where forgiveness isn't enough. Where there does have to be some kind of punishment or this is just a cycle that will hit a roadblock one more time. And since we as a culture are so fetishistic when it comes to forgiveness that we tend to forget the crime in the meantime, her being such a strong presence throughout... And the women, as we see their agency both being exercised and taken away, when Panikpak finally makes that decision at the end, it feels so freeing and relieving, and especially considering what we're going through right now, I think it just has a very powerful resonance, both specific to this culture and this movie, but also with what we're dealing with overall.
2: Yeah, and the rest of the movie, everything... Is sort of like, if, if no one responds,
1: then no one's going to disagree
2: with my choice. Even if they're silently, like, don't like it. And the catharsis definitely plays to the fact that she's waited for generations to call this out and name it for what it is. That's just incredible. Like, most movies don't have that generational gap in their main cast to even imply that that much time has gone by before somebody has brought something to a head in terms of what we might call justice or just the healing of a group of people or however you want to look at it. it it's, it's almost staggering to think every time they cut to her face and her just having to, a lot of the time being the only one that thinks about that harmony is something that's important and just holding it until the right time comes to put that forward is like this is what we're returning to now the time has come
1: i think that's a good spot for us to leave off on
0: yeah i was just thinking like damn that's very well said i don't (laughs) know where to go after that (laughs) well seth where can people find you where can they contact you if they want to get a hold of all that great art that you do your paintings your digital art etc
2: i'm on the I guess the big 3 social networks, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, I use SM Gordon, which is spelled S M G O R D E N on all of those platforms. So, if you find me on one, you can find me on all of them. Instagram is mostly art stuff. Twitter, I look at a lot of comic book artists and talk about random stuff and uh, I think Facebook mostly has art stuff on it too. But yeah, you can find me anywhere and we we
0: can have a conversation or whatever. <laughs> Excellent. And Andrew, where can uh, folks find you?
1: Well, there's also Twitter. Uh, I am at Can't Stop Drew. I also monitor our Gmail account, which is ac at gmail.com. You can also, of course, reach me at can'tstopthemovies.com. And as uh, Courtney put it at the beginning, I have a wife and cats to feed. <laughs> Please consider donating to the Patreon.
0: Excellent. And uh, folks can find me on Twitter at Changing AC. That's our Twitter account. And me personally, you can contact me at smallmind. I'd like to thank you all for listening. It was a very loosey-goosey episode. We'll have it a lot more tighter the, the next time. But just remember, you can change the conversation about diversity in cinema one reel at a time. This has been a
1: presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. Oh, snap, we get to talk Ghost Doc next.